world is at a crossroads. Across the planet, there's a realization that back to normal after the coronavirus crisis is neither possible nor desirable. The crisis has shown us that many of the things we thought were inevitable, from car-choked streets to constrained public spending, are not. As the lockdown eases around the world, we'll see leaders try to show up an unsustainable global economy which has driven us to the brink of climate disaster. But what if we rewrote the rules to put people and planet first? In this episode, our panel of international speakers explore what a post-lockdown world might look like and how it will affect the climate. We'll discuss why we need to treat the climate crisis as urgently as the COVID-19 pandemic. And we'll of course be asking our panelists what actions we can take to win a brighter, greener future. Guy Taylor, activism manager at Global Justice Now, is joined by Nimo Bassi, a leading environmental activist and author in Nigeria, Alice Pickard, activist and board member of Attack France, and Danny Paffert, head of organising at Green New Deal UK and part of the Build Back Better campaign. Welcome to the Global Justice Now podcast. Just a note, unfortunately, we did experience some technical issues during the webinar and the sound quality varies throughout the episode. Regardless, I do hope you enjoy it. We're going to start now with Alice uh, Picard from Attack France who's going to outline uh, what Attack France is doing in this, uh, in, in this situation. So Alice, go ahead. Well, thank you very much. And first, thank you for inviting me. Uh, so I'm going to keep an eye on the time because I'm sure that what I prepared is too long. And first of all, English is not my first language, so please excuse any grammar or pronunciation mistake that I could make. So this campaign, um, Ecological and Social Revolution, is our latest uh, campaign. But I think that what I want to say uh, tonight is that um, it wouldn't exist if there hadn't been a pre- pre- preliminary uh, step and conditions such as uh, former campaign, past campaigns, and dialogues with a broad range of organizations. And uh, in a way, it's just a new branding for a very old idea that uh, we are promoting in Attack France. And um, um, it's just that the branding compels us to think more thoroughly uh, about the articulation between ecological and the, the ecological and the social dimensions of the revolution that we are calling for. Uh, Up until now, it's true that we were more talking about social and climate justice, which indeed is a little bit more narrow uh, approach. So I think that I'm gonna focus more on on the process rather than the content. Um, And as I was preparing for this webinar, I was desperately trying to sum up briefly uh, what we mean by an ecological and social revolution, and I think that I failed. And then yesterday we had um, we had a, a welcome meeting for new members in my region, and someone stressed that what is good with ATTAC is that our thinking is always evolving, and that it's something that the person appreciated about us. And I think our ecological and social revolution campaign is just the result of our constant um, evolving thinking. Um, 
so I'm, I'm going to focus then on the steps that led to, to this campaign. Um, and just to, to stress that the, it's not that the process is more, is more important than the content, but I think the process determined the content of, of the campaign that we are actually building uh, just now. So I think that it's always been in the DNA of ATTAC um, uh, to, to say that the responsibility for the social and ecological crisis um, are not shared equally between North and South countries first, but even uh, within uh, Western countries, the, the responsibility is not the same between um, the, the people who you know, have the wealth and, and the poor people. So there's nothing new in this campaign, but we want to, uh, we want to underline um, again that um, it's all about money and the power to, uh, to allocate it. But we started in uh, 2018 um, with our not with our money campaign, and it was basically to ask for a disinvestment from uh, fossil fuels, and uh, we were targeting banks, and especially a, a, a kind of public bank. Uh, it's not it's not exactly a bank, but it's it's an institution that manages um, savings, and we were asking for this institution to stop funding fossil fuels. Um, so that was the first step, um, and then in well, and before that, we have we had had a, a campaign entitled "One Million Climate Jobs." Uh, it was in 2017, and actually, it was an idea coming from the UK, and um, we published a report um, uh, outlining uh, where the jobs could be created with what money in, in public as well as in private private sectors um, and then so there was the yellow vest uh, movement uh, last year well it's, it's still ongoing but um, mainly it was last year um, and we had uh, we had a campaign uh, saying that end of the month and end of the world were actually the same struggles and it was uh, intended to echo the, um, the, the demands that the yellow vests had uh, during the winter last year. And then more recently, uh, we started a dialogue with around 20 organizations. And that's quite a new, um, a new development because uh, in this new, um, new group, uh, you have uh, trade unions as well as environmental groups. And I think it's quite new. Usually these, these two kinds of organizations don't really talk to each other. And as ATTAC itself is, is an organization um, that consists in, you, you know, who have, um, that have, has uh, founding members, um, they, they usually come to us when, when, they, when we are trying to, um, to make conversions happen. And so um, we started a dialogue and then I think the lockdown and the crisis um, sped up the process a little bit and uh, we published a report uh, two weeks ago, two or three weeks ago. Um, it's plus jamais ça, so, so it means uh, never again. And uh, we have uh, written um, 34 demands uh, for a, a recovery plan or an exit plan from the crisis. And so it's really good that all these organizations could participate. So 
as well uh, tr uh, trade unions as well as environmental organizations and um, so it's that's why I said that the process was uh, important uh, as well because then this these organizations have to work together listen to um, to what they each have to say uh, which is really good but anyway we are trying to uh, articulate uh, the ecological and social dimensions uh, so we are um, and by social I think uh, it's not it's not only the class uh, aspect I think that we are actually focusing also on gender and race um, so it's ecological uh, and, and social dimensions in that sense and what we are asking for is a clear shift in the economy that that means a clear that we are um, we are saying it's a clear democratic issue. Uh, it's quite old, but uh, sometimes it's, it's good to bring bring this up again. Um, so it, it it goes it goes a bit further than just demanding a halt, which is important a halt to trade deals or uh, privileging public investment over private allocation of money. But we are saying that communities must regain control over what is produced, how, and with what purpose. Uh, so we want to uh, to uh, do away with the profit-driven economy. Um, so we published this uh, recovery plan and also more recently um, a book on uh, relocalizations um, that we, we want relocalization to be solidarity-based. Um, so it means that uh, we, we want to... Uh, um, make clear that we don't want to close borders or, um, you know, be, be selfish in a kind of way. We, we want to think about this relocalization process um, as well as um, uh, making sure that it's, it's in solidarity with the Global South and that we can uh, keep exchange, collaborate and uh, support uh, their development. Um, and I think I'm going to say a few words about this, the stakes and the challenges. And uh, there are challenges when when you are carrying out a campaign uh, with trade unions and environmental organization. Um, you have to uh, to be clear on a few things, and and sometimes so it's going to make trade unions happy and uh, we are we have uh, published recently a, a brief note on uh, the, the the money that is going to be given to a uh, Renault so uh, a car industry company and uh, clearly we are trying to say nicely that we are not we don't agree with the um, the main trade union in the sector because they just want uh, relocalization of the production and to shift from uh, fossil fuel cars to um, electrical cars. And we say that it's, it's not going to be enough. We want to rethink uh, trans modes of transport and also mobility and urban planning. And we don't think that electrical cars are, uh, are a solution but we are trying to, uh, to be as constructive as we can uh, so as not to, uh, to stop the dialogue with trade unions. So that's, that's a, a challenge, but I think that um, we are doing pretty, pretty good so far. Thank you. 
Thank you so much, Alice. That's really good start, and uh, it's really good to hear that such positive action has been taken in in France. Uh, we will move on uh, to to Nimo, uh, who has a, a huge um, reputation and a huge track record in, in fighting for climate justice in Nigeria and internationally. Um, I'm not going to uh, uh, steal his thunder by giving him an overlong introduction. I'll just let him uh, uh, take it from here. And uh, Nimo, over to you. Thank you so much. And thanks, Alice, for that presentation. Thanks, everyone who have joined this webinar. Um, I will try to be quick. Uh, I, I just went to a link that was shared about that says, um, the world has six months to avert climate crisis, and that's really very, very alarming. Um, I, I would have thought we had doubled that time, but six months really short. Uh, you know, people thought that the coronavirus pandemic has more or less shown the world clearly uh, that something needs to be done, that things can change, and that it's time to hold the brakes in terms of the release of greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, all the pollution, all the problems in the oil fields. But that doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, the lessons are all around us. The message is very clear. But the power of capital doesn't seem to allow the polluters to think of changing the model. Uh, they just want to move the system to get it creaking and moving on for as long as possible. Uh, I, I speak this from very, I mean, if you look around uh, the, where the fossil fuels are being extracted, because my, my, I'm speaking from the position of the fact that the, the supply of fossil fuels will continue to propel global warming, and that we have to really get to the beginning of the pipeline to stop this further extraction, further expansion of fossil fuel extraction, whether gas or oil or coal. Uh, so the pandemic so far has uh, the oil prices went down, but the oil wells have never been shut down. It has stopped oil spills, uh, rivers, creeks, and lakes in places like Nigeria, where I come from, is still being privatized and used by the oil corporations as their waste dumps. So that's not. And secondly, politicians in Africa, especially, uh, believe that. Uh, even though the price of uh, the, even though the resources may not have as much value as they used to have, but there's a very low value placed on the quality of environment and the people. That means corporations can totally discount environmental costs and continue to reap profit. Profit, even when the resource itself has very low value. And some of, surprisingly, some of our leaders in Africa have said that. Uh, a quote once said, Africa would develop with oil and gas, whether the West likes it or not. That sounds like poetry, but <laughs> it's not poetry, but it's, it's a very horrible declaration, which more or less says that no matter how bad the climate situation is, no matter how dire the situation is, we are going to keep on burning fossil fuels. We're going to move to alternative energy resources because this is what we've got, and we've got to get the money. Sometimes the arguments are very political and they make sense, uh, especially when somebody wears the catch-up 
heart, want to catch up with somebody else, so somebody else used a certain means to get to where they are, so you want to use the same, but that argument doesn't just work because you cannot replicate the system, uh, the, the horrible systems that, that built the world, especially for the global north over the past centuries. Um, so, and we, we've seen reports also done by uh, researchers who have shown that um, rather than reduce production, polluting industries that continue to spend a lot of money to deny global warming, and they're planning already to double fossil fuel production by 2030 by the amount of investment that is already on. Yeah, I read this morning that uh, the, a massive um, $22 billion liquefied natural gas project in Mozambique, uh, which has been driven by Total, uh, they've just concluded the financial arrangement. And most of the money is being uh, derived from speculations on the amount of reserve available. So it's not about selling the resource, it's about speculating about how much reserve you have uh, that you could sell into the future. Uh, so the future is already seen as being built on the, on the pathways of fossil fuel, uh, continual dependence on fossil fuel. And that is really very sad. We, we look at the Paris Agreement targets of two degrees and 1.5 degrees. And for Africa, uh, if you permit me, for Africa, if the current uh, reserves, current fossil fuel reserves are exploited in full, uh, we're still going to exceed the two degrees target. Uh, so if the, fossil, the known fossil fuels reserve and the ones that are just being found are, are, the, are the new exploration, that new oil fields being developed, new gas with new coal mines are being developed, then we're going to overshoot the targets very, very much. Uh, now, why, how come nations are not really willing to, 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 to pay the price, to, to value the planet and the people more than, more than capital? Uh, it's because for, for a long time, many countries have depended on natural resources for their budget, and especially the fossil fuel exporting countries, countries like Nigeria, Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, Angola, Ecuador, Libya, Gabon, Algeria, Kuwait, and the rest. It depends so much on the value of a price of the of a barrel of crude oil to balance their budget and they want they most of them require that the price should be hovering around 50 60 70 dollars per barrel but that is not the case right now so many of these countries are having serious uh, serious crisis in terms of how to, to to balance their budget so when it comes to global warming you find that people are willing to hang their ideas on false solutions. The ideas that things can be done, you can keep on with the current pathways, then find some other ways to counteract, to build a, a net zero economy, a net, net zero carbon economy, where you keep on polluting, then you find a way of capturing some of that. And this will lead to more land grabs, sea grab through the blue economy, through geoengineering, ocean fertilization, and sky grab, of course, through various means of of weather modification, either the wiping of the clouds uh, through the injection of sulfates into the stratosphere, or cloud brightening with seawater, or carbon capture and burial, or production of genetically modified trees that have higher levels of chlorophyll that can absorb more carbon. The ideas never end. Uh, it's a plethora of ideas. And all this is to, to ensure that we locking destructive development pathways and believe that technology will solve the problem. You keep hearing about this in the conference of parties, negotiations of climate change, that look, 
we can, technology will solve the problem, this and that will solve the problem, rather than stopping the, the pollution at the problem at source, which is what we need to, to get done. But, you know, the arguments about have the, the polluters driving uh, negotiations, influencing uh, the rule books and all that, all these are about the, the, the power, the logic of power. That's one thing that we really need to look at. Uh, that is really ensuring that uh, nothing real is being done. So we're still on the pathways for carbon colonization, carbon slavery. Uh, carbon slavery has been illustrated by the RED project in Mozambique and other places. There was a particular case where a community was paid, families were paid less than $100 to protect certain trees for 90 years. And if those families, the leaders of the family died off, the children would carry on the burden of, of protecting the tree because of the carbon in the tree, not the value of the tree, not what the tree is, not what the forest is meant to be. Uh, people forget that a forest is not a carbon stock. A forest is a living ecosystem. A, fo a forest is where community and life exists, uh, where this interaction of so many life forms. So you have that going on. You still have big dams in proposed, like the Inga tree dam on the Congo River and big dams elsewhere. And some people even have their front of saying that uh, nuclear power is green. Can you imagine that? Now, coming to the COVID uh, crisis, uh, the coronavirus and cl false climate solutions are almost, you know, they have a lot of similarities. The COVID-19 is very opportunistic because most people who succumb to it are people who had underlying health causes. Uh, now, the false solutions latch on the fact that, look, uh, they lie, they lie, the stories that climate impacts can be offset by certain actions, and while others keep polluting, others can keep doing the action when they exchange money in between them. Uh, so COVID-19 intensifies existing vulnerabilities, and this is what global warming does when there's no climate action. The vulnerabilities are getting higher. Uh, people are less resilient to impact. Nobody's paying for loss and damage. And we find that the, the covid generated a lot of resources. I mean, not generated resources in that sense, but it provided the, the, the platform for corporations to be bailed out one more time. Uh, these same corporations would not do anything to bail out the poor who keeps on being drowned by climate impacts. Uh, we, myself, my organization wrote a book recently, a book recently called Who Benefits from Corona, Coronavirus? Because we, we saw before, uh, we saw right from the beginning of the pandemic, that there was a lot of economic interest in uh, the future of the pandemic, uh, about how to move about money in terms of uh, debts being owed by some countries. Uh, so that rather than taking action, you just pretend that you, you, you are slowing down the repayment of the debt uh, so that things can go on as usual. Everything is to continue with business as usual. So we must understand the logic of power in terms of global, tackling global warming and tackling even the coronavirus. Uh, the, the basis of global warming in some of our experiences is environmental racism. Even that racism is very high on the agenda in the world today. It's just clearly neo-colonial, more inequalities, uh, and it's just a kind of uh, people being in denial of 
ongoing ecocide in many uh, oil fields and coal fields and gas fields across the world, not just in Africa, also in Europe, in North America, in Canada, in Latin America, in Asia, everywhere. Uh, we're seeing a denial to pay the, to recognize that it's a climate debt and ecological debt that needs to be paid. And so what do we need to do? The whole argument, the whole plans we must forge together is a radical socioeconomic transformation, which includes, of course, ecological aspects. And I, I just round up here by saying that we have to do all we can to reconnect to nature across nature. This is what the lockdown has told us. And we've seen examples of nature recovering, but this may not happen once the lockdown is over, this may not continue. Uh, then of course, we have to build the future by reimagining our narrative. What kind of future do we want? What kind of life, what kind of economic system do we want to run? And how do we want to live together in the North, in the South, in the West, and in the East? Uh, which means that there's need for political action. We go on the streets, let's make it real political action. We need to strengthen solidarity. We need to build more linkages between the regions. Uh, recently, when the virus pandemic started, I wrote an article titled, The Virus Will Not Change Anything, We Won't Change. The virus will not change anything, we will not change. And, and I, I just want to quote that paragraph and I close with that. A key fact we have to face is that the coronavirus will not change anything, we won't change. The change that will frame the post-pandemic era will come from humans, our relationship with each other and with nature. The push for change will inevitably revolve around our interpretation of what is happening around us. So how do we interpret what is going around us? What is our imaginary? What is the future we're looking for? That is what will help us fashion what we must do. Because the virus itself, no matter how deadly it is, will not change anything. Thank you so much, Nimo. It was uh, fantastic to hear your, 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 your words there. Um, so I'm going to ask uh, Danny to, to, to come in now. And uh, Danny is from the uh, Green New Deal UK organisation, which is quite a young organisation. And uh, she's here to explain exactly what they need and what they want out of the, um, out of the uh, corona crisis and, and, and what follows. So, uh, Danny, you've got 10 minutes. Great. Um, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be on uh, such a great panel. And, um, yeah, I've been following kind of Nima for, for years. And, yeah, I was very impressed with the tech. I think when I arrived in Paris and they were stealing chairs from banks to, like, really make the point, and I was like yes these people they're good <laughs> so it's a real a real pleasure to be here this evening um, my name is danny i am uh, an environmental and social justice campaigner i uh am currently head of organizing at green new deal uk um but i used to work for 350 um running the fossil fuel divestment campaign in the uk and have been involved in lots of um kind of social and environmental kind of direct actions over the years, kind of stopping tax avoidance or fossil fuel projects or various things. Um, and uh, yeah, was, was really excited to um, kind of spend a year in Nigeria uh, to come back and um, to get involved with, with Green New Deal organizing, which felt like, um, which at the time was kind of like, excitement was kind of bubbling up around and um i guess what i'm going to speak to today very briefly is like introduce that idea and our like political analysis and then talk about the build back better campaign 
and like what we're doing and like how to get involved and um yeah that's that's what i'll do um so yeah we started with you know green new deal which is this kind of big it's not a single policy it's a whole kind of transformation it's a state of mind it's a full kind of rip up um, and kind of 10-year mass mobilization of government resources to tackle this kind of major problem of like the double crisis of climate and inequality and really recognizing that those two things are one and the same crisis and we tackle them together um, and we cannot do it unless we fundamentally transform our economy um, and um, the time for tinkering around the edges is gone um, we need a full-scale kind of transformative Green New Deal. Um, so yeah, we Green New Deal UK started in, uh, we started in November and see ourselves as the um, kind of an organising hub around, around the Green New Deal. And we work with, you know, the Youth Strikers and Labour for Green New Deal and 350 are all part of our kind of governance structure. And it's really about organizing because I think, you know, the Green New Deal was proposed by some left wing academics after the financial crisis. And their analysis is you can have the best ideas in the world, but unless you're on the ground organizing for them, fighting for them, pushing for them, it's not going to work. Um, so kind of feeling in this being in this space where we felt like, you know, everyone was talking about Green New Deal policies and like, what did the policy need to be? What do the demands need to be? And it's like, Who's organising for this? How are we de how are we demanding this in our communities? Um, so that's kind of where we where we started, um, and um, our like political analysis. You know, we launched you know a few weeks before the election was called, and um, obviously post election had to a kind of transformative progressive Green New Deal is like a difficult thing to achieve with a very solid um, conservative majority who's not interested in those kind of very basically radical socialist transformations, um, even though we're not party um, aligned. Um, and so we felt the key was like local organizing and building power in our communities and like um, working to build across like organized youth, organized workers and organized communities to build that power. Um, and then came coronavirus. And we're like, okay, the time for like local small scale organizing is not right now. This is a kind of key moment where like our whole world has been turned upside down, um, kind of really exposing the kind of horrible vulnerabilities across society that have been really, really kind of pulled out in this moment and completely changed our like whole concept of like, you know, reminding us what is important and, um, you know, what, what government can do when it pulls its finger out and like, you know, actually gets to work putting kind of people's needs first or, or what it could do. Um, so we kind of sat down with a bunch of organizations and were like, how do we make sure that in this moment we take this kind of, this kind of new reality and make sure that we build from this and we don't go back to business as usual and we do create something better. So we got together with a bunch of organizations and we um, designed the Build Back Better campaign um and uh oh yeah actually that's the i'm oh, very good um, thank you um and we've got a kind of steering group that's made up of unions of health organizations of green groups of young people um and frontline groups including um uh kind of migrant rights groups um 
and we worked and there's now about 70 or, 70 or 80 organizations signed up and we worked on a series of kind of key demands that we wanted the principles behind this this recovery and what we wanted and it was about protecting people investing in our public services and really committing to a, you know transforming society with a green new deal to tackle the climate crisis um so that's where we got to um and then the kind of campaign we we have these principles and we're working with the new economics foundation to like do a kind of collaborative process to turn them ultimately into policy demands but um i'm not a policy person i'm an organizer and you know best policies in the world unless people are shouting for them doesn't matter um, so this campaign is about like building the kind of public support, which turns into political pressure to make um, a kind of just and green recovery possible. So um, we recognize we're in this kind of two phase recovery at the moment. So the government is like, you know, really rapidly responding and doing kind of firefighting emergency measures at the moment. And we'll move into a kind of recovery, more like longer term recovery stuff in um, what's looking like the autumn. Um, and our strategy is really around like number one storytelling and like lifting up the stories of those like charismatic frontline workers, the nurses, the shop stewards, the fruit pickers who are now the kind of heroes, rightly so, of the economy and telling their stories about what it means to build back better, to have good conditions, um, to be paid properly, to have bursaries, to have a funded public health system and lift up um lift up their voices there's a narrative a storytelling piece around that and we're inviting people to tell their stories um and uh there's a second element which is around like mobilizing around key moments and kind of having our voices collectively heard um and there's also a key piece around local organizing because um, we think that is really important and um i'll just kind of like finish off by explaining because i think i've only got like two minutes left um by explaining the kind of local organizing element so um we think that we've just launched kind of on the website a a kind of community sign-on pledge and the idea is that people in their communities work together and reach out to the other organizations you know in their area be their unions be their youth groups be their environmental groups um faith groups uh, and work together on an open letter to their MP to show the really broad based support around key demands for, for building back better because we ultimately we believe that only with a really broad based and diverse social movement will we will we have these these asks heard. Um, so we've launched that tool we're asking people to self organize pick it up in their community. If you're the person that takes on the spreadsheet, you get added to the map and then people come and find you. Um, it's a bit bootleg, it's simple, but you know, that's what we need. And um, we'll be taking part in the Climate Coalition um, mass lobby on the 30th of June. So a chance to like for people to get in front of their MPs and talk about what they care about. And then we'll be building to a big hand in at some point over the summer when we've got enough kind of political power behind them. Um, so that, um, and we're doing local organizer trainings at the moment, if you want a briefing, um, it's all on the like, it's all on the website on the start organizing tab and the final thing that we are thinking about is mobilizations and how do we like act in this moment with social distancing um to to like raise you know raise the profile of issues and i think key things coming up um the first one is the nhs's birthday on the 5th of july it's going to be 72 
um, what a great moment to celebrate not only the people uh, and that have like um, made this happen, but the vision of like healthcare for everyone um, that that kind of founded it and the ambition that made that happen. Um, so we're working with Keep Our NHS Public to do local actions and also doing cake baking with your NHS birthday wishes to tweet at your MP. Um, so please do get involved in that. Um, and after that, I think we'll be planning for some kind of big mobilization moment in the autumn, um, which I hope people can join in with. Thanks, Danny. Fantastic. As you've heard from our panelists, it's uh, it's a this webinar is uh, designed to be about the problems, but mostly solutions and I, things we can do as activists, as uh, as, as operators in in in, in many different uh, uh, circles, what we can do to make a difference uh, to the future. Um, there's a couple of questions uh, directly to Alice asking about which trade unions are you engaged with, and especially on the debate about electric vehicles and what have you. But um, Ash from Lincolnshire is asking about um, passenger aircraft and cruise liners are elbowing their way to the front of the queue for state handouts uh, during the corona uh, uh, crisis. How can we argue against this without being anti-jobs, anti-leisure, anti-fun and anti-normal? Uh, I think it's a very, very relevant question. There's, uh, there's often um, this, uh, this dichotomy uh, presented about, you know, you're either for jobs or for the climate and there's uh, never the twain shall meet. I think there's been many examples where this has been proven, proven uh, not to be the case, but um, I'd like uh, the panelists to uh, take on this question about, um, about jobs and trade unions and their involvement in environmentalism but also on uh, especially in the UK we have in you know trade unions were supporting the construction of the third runway at Heathrow which was an environmental catastrophe uh, waiting to happen hopefully it won't happen now the um, now now the, uh, uh, the the demand for uh, air travel has uh, has fallen somewhat and uh, What's happening in other places in, in Nigeria and in France about, uh, you know, the air industry and the support for um, industries uh, f from trade unionists, which appears in some ways to be against the interests of, uh, of environmentalists? Can we start with Alice with this one? Because there's a couple of the questions that come to you. I'm not sure if you've read the questions, Alice, but uh, if you could address the trade union issue, which you did in your lead off, but uh, we can have a bit more detail, that'd be great. Uh, so there are two main uh, unions in our coalition. Uh, there's Solidaire, um, which is a founding member of ATTAC. So this is how we work with them. There, there is a representative in our board. So that, that I think that answers the question. But there's also La CGT. So CGT is, is the oldest union in France, and um, it's, it's been linked to the Communist Party for a long time. So that tells you, you know, a bit about their ideology. So it's it's with them that is the most complicated to work with. Um, but they're evolving, and, and the problem is that it's a federation or a confederation. So when when you can talk with some of the some of the federations you're not talking to every one of them so that's that's a challenge for uh la cgt itself so we are trying as i said we are trying um to make sure that that the dialogue is not stopped and and so we are saying yes um some industries are going to be 
uh, are uh, are detrimental to the climate. It will have to stop. Um, but what we want most of all is also for um, rebuilding a real social protection. So we are really insisting also on workers' rights, their right to train, uh, their right for um, benefits when when they are unemployed, um, and so. And, but most of all, we don't we don't want uh, to say that uh, it's going to be okay if if we just say okay uh, we're going to stop the car industry and there's and there is going to be another industry instead uh, because we don't believe that um, we can go back to old solutions when the state um, you know was planning the whole economy. Um, so we really want uh, communities and workers themselves to, to think about, uh, okay, so what, what should they produce? And, and the corona crisis has shown that some, some factories were actually able and willing uh, to shift their old production and to, um, to produce masks um, and, uh, and other medical equipment. So... So I think this is how we can get trade unions on board to say that we believe that workers themselves uh, are aware uh, of the, the, the ecological uh, challenge and, and if we let them decide, um, they can actually take it into their own hands and, and you know, manage themselves, uh, factories and the whole economy. Um, so yeah, so... I look forward to hearing uh, what uh, the other speakers uh, think about that. Thanks, Alice. Um, we'll ask now Danny to um, to perhaps go into a bit more detail and, and perhaps some of the arguments we're having with um, with trade unions or trade unionists uh, in in the UK about um, how we're getting on board and how we're actually putting the uh, interests of our of future generations above the immediate interests of some workers in some people's views? Yeah, I think um, we need to be working really closely with the trade unions, I think. And I think there's a real like trust problem, particularly between like the environmental movement and like the, the like, you know, workers' rights movement, because, you know, it seemed that the environmental movement is willing to throw workers under a bus and like we absolutely cannot be seen to be doing that. And I think, um, so there's a real kind of like trust building exercise to happen. And I think where we've worked really constructively with unions is it, you know, we can keep debating, um, you know, how we've worked constructively with Unite, for example, is who've like a very like, you know, pro third runway, but it's like, let's focus on the things that we, do agree on and we strategically align on and that's how we create really like powerful collaborations that push the dial on like what is possible and like what the kind of populist wants um, and um, and kind of how we get there so I think my our, like our approach to like working with unions has definitely been to like let's focus on the positive let's push really hard on the things that we know that we want and we can win on and create a really kind of solid movement around that and then we'll be in a position to have the like the harder conversations and I think we haven't put the um you know the green movement needs to line up you know change is really scary for people and like lots of people have been through these transitions like transitions normally mean bad things and like we need to really you know recognize that in people and there's and there's a very you know change people want change but 
change being done to you is disempowering and not fun and like scary. So how do we make sure that we're working with like in proper dialogues with, with those workers around like, okay, recognizing that, you know, this industry can't keep going. What do you want? And then saying, okay, we'll, we'll line up behind you and we will, we will fight to make sure that there's a jobs guarantee that you're not like your skills, you're, that you're given work that with equivalent, um, you know, kind of technical and like pay requirements, like unlike with the kind of miners, um, you know, kind of the transition out of coal in, in the eighties. Um, so I think it's about like identifying this, like being there for, for recognizing that people are worried, being there for that fight, the environmental movement standing with people who, who were going through that. Um, and yeah, I think it was a really great example. The NGO possible last week did worked with, um, a group of pilots talking about um, pilot, like current pirates and ex-pilots talking about um, why they why they wanted the aviation industry to to change. Um, and you know those conversations were long and hard, um, but but we can get somewhere if we do it. Thanks, Danny. Nimo, is uh, is it a similar situation in Nigeria, uh, or what's your experience and uh, what's the uh... Tell us about your successes about working with uh, trade unions. Um, well, um, the, it's, it's a mixed situation here. Um, the biggest, the biggest uh, level union in Nigeria is the Nigerian Labour Congress, and they they have they are very concerned about climate change. They actually have a climate change strategy, and we do cooperate with them to prepare positions. The, they're very, in that sense, they're very green, I would say, <laughs> they're, they're pro-climate action. Uh, but then you, you have the unions who are with workers in the extractive sector, in the petro petroleum field, who are totally, uh, they're, they're more, they play the game of the industry. And they, they, I, I believe what they think is that um, if you speak of transition, just transition, it means they're going to lose jobs and, or everything will go somewhere else uh, without the deep understanding that really. Uh, of course, we know that if the industry wants to change or is forced to change, they would have to adapt and the workers would have to learn new skills. But that is really not, not on the table for my conversations with uh, unionists in, the, uh, in that sector. Uh, if it's as bad, uh, I think it's very big influence of management on, on workers. And so you don't see much movement in that direction. Thank you. Thank you, Nemo. Um, we're going to move on now to a different theme. There, there's been a number of questions about world leaders and people who are in charge. Uh, and other people, someone else has said they, they've got, uh, I think Kathy has got a, uh, an trying to set up an interview with a, a Tory MP about, and what, what do I need to tell him? Um, and we are suffering, if, especially if you look at uh, the US, the UK, and Brazil, we're suffering quite an, uh, an awful leadership in, in, in the world at the moment. How can we affect change when we've got such, uh, such leaders? Um, is there any chance? Can we do things uh, around them or, or despite them? And, uh, and is there any hope? Uh, I also want to link in, there was one early question I can't quite scroll to at the moment, but saying is how urgent is this? Obviously, it's very urgent, but uh, some reports say there's, you know, six months before we reach tipping point and what have you. So uh, 
what sense of urgency and how do we how do we work around this block we have above us in parliaments in the white house in uh, in, in 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 governments around the world uh could i start please with danny on this one so the question is how we get around governments that don't want to do what we want them to do i mean yeah my answer to this is always so basic but it's just like organize 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 campaign i think you know extinction rebellion here have done such a good job of just like pushing the envelope and just really like kind of like raising public consciousness and the imagination and really putting down radical demands and like really popularizing them and i think you know they really taught the they taught us a thing or two about um you know being bold and being very public and visible and i think there's two i think there's two sides to it i think you need that like very public very visible very, very radical um and then we need the side that's about like community organizing and like bringing people with us and like them embodying the change that they want and being you know because the changes that we're demanding are like are big and will affect all of us and so engaging communities in how they want that change to happen and making sure that everyone is bought in with those changes and see that it's it's a good thing, I think is really important. Otherwise we risk having culture wars. Um, and so I think it's about, um, it's about visible and bold, but it's also about building intentionally really broad based support. Um, and because it is in everyone's interests to, to tackle the climate emergency. Um, so I think those two strands need to work in parallel. And I think we've done really well on the first, and we need to do better on the second. Thanks, Danny. Nimmo, would you um, would you chime in on this one? What, and and perhaps uh, give us a quick out, outline of uh, of the situation now with your government and uh, climate action in Nigeria. <laughs> well, that's that's a complex, very complex question for me. And um, yeah, you know, but let me just let me. You know, in Nigeria, when you face with a difficult question, we say you can go to Afghanistan. That means you don't talk about Nigeria, you talk about anywhere else. So I'd like to talk about Britain and the US and Brazil at this time. <laughs> you know, you look when we sit down here and look at the leader in the global north, many of the countries really very astonishing because we just wonder how could this sort of people get to that, that level of leadership and be calling the shot and just taking the world in the wrong direction. The response to the coronavirus is a very clear example, where some leaders don't just care how many people die, provided they can hide the fact that people are dying. That's what, that's what the leaders are trying to do, to hide the fact that people are dying, that workers are dying, that citizens are dying. Just don't tell anybody. It doesn't matter. So this is the same response to global warming. Uh, we, we don't have, you know, some of these leaders don't have many years to live, they, they're almost at the end of their, their time. And so they don't really care what happens to the children, what happens to the youths. So I believe that the response to the failure of leadership that we're seeing around us is about how patient would young people be. This is where the, the solution is going to come from. It will come from the young people, not for old folks like me. It's going to come from young people because they got a whole future ahead of them if they can get change the system, but if they don't change the system, there's no future. And I think it's, it's a terrible thing for anybody to live without having a dream of the future. 
So I think the vitality of the youth and the, we, we're seeing, for example, this, again, going back to the coronavirus, it's a lockdown, but it doesn't stop people from protesting. That is very symbolic, that the resilience of the collective is where the change will come from. Let this kind of resolve also go to the ballot box. When it's time to vote, don't just protest, go vote. It's got to be the ballot box. Otherwise, it will be something as a revolution. The ballot box can also be a tool for revolution. But we really need to get angry enough, especially young people, angry enough to say, look, we have a, we have a future. I was going to say we have a dream. But of course, I would say that too. We have a future that we want to get to. And that, that to me is where, where and, and this is somebody asked the question, they can give us a, something to, hang, to hope on. And I think the people on the street, in the face of the virus, protesting racism, protesting colonialism, saying Black Lives Matter, every life matter, that to me is the hope that we have, that no matter how difficult things are, no matter how dangerous it is, people are ready to come together, solidarity, people are coming together. This is where the future is. Thank you, Nima. Um, Alice, uh, just as I was asking that question, I couldn't quite scroll down, and then I see that Barbara, Barbara from uh, from the South Coast has uh, framed it much uh, much more eloquently than I did. Um, how do we frame the story in debate with politicians to get action on climate within the next five years, when we have right wing governments like our own with large majorities? Um, is it is it this is, oh, is this an impossible circle to square, or, or, or have we got a chance? What, what, what do you say to that, Alice? Well, I think we can't have a discussion with the, the, the head of state we have at the moment. Um, I mean, uh, so I'm, I'm just, well, starting with the, um, it's not the Black Lives Matter in, in, in France. It's a very similar movement, but uh, in France, it's it's organized around um, several comités, justice et vérité. So committees for justice and truth, and they've been organizing for several years. And I think that we have a lot to learn from them because it's actually the first time since lockdown that uh, we have protests that are significant. So I'd say that we have to learn from so the Black Lives Matter movement and and also the feminist movements, which are the the, the most uh, successful movements. Uh, even though now that I've said that uh, they're radical, um, they are interesting in in the sense that um, they they include. Um, I mean, I can be critical about attack. I think the feminist movement and the Black Lives Matter uh, Black Lives Matter movement are much more um, diverse in terms of social makeup than attack. So I think that we have to learn from them because we're really white. Uh, very, uh, you know, we've all been to university uh, almost. And so I think that we have to learn from, from these movements uh, in order to put pressure on the government because I don't think that we can discuss anything with this government. And if we look uh, at the past, the, the successful movements, um, they've never been negotiating with governments. Um, the last thing that we've achieved was the cancellation of uh, the Notre Dame des Landes airport. So it was two or three years ago. And it came after years of struggle on the ground. So people were 
in the field, they were occupying the place. And several times a year, uh, thousands, well, tens of thousands of people would travel to Notre Dame de Londres and said and saying they were opposed to the project. Um, but it took a change in government. So I think it's it's good to put pressure on the government and waiting until the next one, the next election, where politicians have, have to, you know, um, take a side. And that that's when that's when you can be successful. But there, I mean, there's there's a great democracy crisis at the moment because the the, the current government in France was elected by 40% of voters. So they don't really care what we're saying because uh, they don't represent the majority already. So I think, no, there's no discussion to be had. Uh, we have to put pressure. And for that, we have to, um, to learn from other more radical and more inclusive movements. Thank you, Alice. Um, there's a question that uh, was asked earlier on the Q&A, uh, which I want to have a look at now. It comes from Biddy Garstang in Somerset. Hello, Biddy. It's so good to see you here. Um, it's, it comes in two parts. It's, um, the, the, I'll read the question now. It says, uh, it's now the time for high change to make the public more aware that we must all pay more, as well as trying to make ecocide a crime as soon as possible. Um, what are the, I take that in two parts. What are the sacrifices you see ordinary everyday people having to make to achieve the change that we need uh, for, 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 for environmental uh, um, restoration and, and, and a future? And what crimes need to be uh, introduced to such statute book, if, if any? Do we need to see more international laws, um, perhaps to take on corporations, to take on governments uh, who might be passing regressive policy, policies on, 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 eco, on, on, on the ecology? So how does it affect individuals and what we, what we must sacrifice? Um, there's been talk earlier about uh, uh, changes in our, in our usage of transport and our mobility and what have you, but also there's obviously there's uh, other aspects of that for individuals. And secondly, the laws we have to, we have to enact and to, uh, to, to actually use to, uh, to keep the uh, governments and, uh, and corporations in check. Um, could we start with Nimo on that one? Uh, thank you, and I will answer only a part of your long question. <laughs> I'll, I'll answer the part that talks about what laws do we need, and that I believe that it is a time for ecocide to be recognized as a, as a crime at the same level as um, as crimes against humanity and, and uh, unusual crimes, the war crimes, genocide, and the rest. Uh, well, really, if you, you look at genocide, I mean, ecocide, ecocide talks about uh, destruction of the environment to an irreversible level or more or less close to that. And th this is something that affects not just biodiversity, but affects humans. Uh, people who are living very close, people, everybody needs to live. We all live in the environment. Even if we go to space, there will be sp environment in space. Um, so um, the... the People living in the crime scenes called oil fields and mine fields are paying extremely high price for the luxuries that people are enjoying around the world. 
um, I, I go to the Niger Delta frequently. And you, you can just go to a community and you look at the, the entire river ahead of you is covered with crude oil. And recently, government told us we have five oil spills every day. Five oil spills every day. You don't hear about this in the, in the news. You don't, hear, you don't read about it in, in Europe. But it's the oil companies from Europe and from North America who are messing up everywhere down here. And, and the shareholders don't have, don't, have, don't have a clue or pretend not to have a clue about the crimes that the corporations are committing on a daily basis. People are losing their lives. You talk about a situation where gas, oil companies are burning gas because they say there are cheaper ways, there are cheaper oil fuels to get gas in a cheaper way, but they choose to burn gas that is connected with uh, crude oil extraction. And so by, by this, they re they've reduced life expectancy to it imagine that data to 41 years? Can you imagine that? That imagine, can you just think about that? And this, this, and somebody believes that nothing is, nothing is wrong. Of course, and uh, this, this has gone on for a long time. I mean, you could, the corporations, the Nigerian government are all complicit because they're working together in tandem. And you find in many parts, many parts of other regions in the world, the corporations and the politicians are working closely together. So they are not, they, they cannot be separated in terms of responsibility. Although the corporations are the operators and they should be higher. We believe that uh, if ecocide is recognized as a law, I mean, as a crime, uh, that would hold corporations accountable and hold the directors of these corporations personally liable. Uh, if that happens, corporations will behave more, more responsibly. Right now, they can hide behind the corporations, commit crimes against people, against humanity, against the environment, and they just go home enjoying their profits. The profit is blood money, pure and simple. Thank you, Nemo. Um, Alice, what have you... Uh... What's your view on those two questions on, uh, on individual sacrifice or, or changes we might have to make? And secondly, on, on laws we need, we need introduced to, to, to tackle this crisis. Well, of course, we need, we need laws and ATTAC has been a, a member of the Stop Corporate Impunity uh, campaign that was uh, demanding uh, a binding international treaty. Um, but the problem is that um, the discussions were on at the UN level, but I think the European Union as well as the US um, have, uh, you know, have made everything possible to stop the process and make sure that it doesn't, doesn't well, there's no treaty, uh, especially not a binding one. Um, and, but I think I, I wouldn't focus too much on, on individual sacrifices because some individuals don't have anything to sacrifice already. That would be unfair to ask um, some people uh, who struggle to make a need uh, to, uh, to sacrifice. But of course, I mean, we have, to, um, we have to address the issue of, as Western countries, um, our way of life, depends on, on the extraction of resources from, from the global south countries. And, and that needs to stop. That needs to be on the table. That needs to be in the, in the discussion. Um, but what would be the point of uh, using less water, uh, buying as much local food as you can, uh, cycling to work, uh, if 
the banks still invest in fossil fuels, if the government uh, doesn't address the tax loopholes that uh, allow uh, companies and individuals to still invest in fossil fuels. Um, I th so I think we, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's good for people who can uh, to make efforts. Uh, but I think the discussion uh, should be placed at, at another level. So that, that's the level of corporations and governments. Um, so that, that will be my answer. Thank you, Alice. Um, Danny, I'm sure there's, uh, there's, there's things that haven't been addressed in those two uh, fantastic answers, uh, if you'd like to uh, carry it on. Yeah, I just, I mean, I won't speak about laws. I think that's been like, I'd ban, I'd ban advertising. That's got to go um, as a specific one. Uh, and I think which links to like, I think just rejecting the premise of sacrifice because I think as soon as we're talking about sacrifice, we're very specific about, I mean, A, I think it's only a sacrifice if you live in a like capitalist uh, mindset of like what is important. And I think the great thing, the like, great is actually the wrong word. I will never use that word again. But the interesting thing that's happening now in this pandemic is people like really reevaluating their values and like what is important and, and and what's important to them and it's not the things that are sold to you by multi-million corporations on the tv all the time it is not the things that global capitalism is telling us that we want um so i think it's not about we don't pitch our movement as sacrifice we like we're like reconnecting with the things that like actually matter and like that and like i think that's the way that we've got to go about this and we're like positive and visionary and talking about the things that we want that are like community and family and like connection and nature and I think as soon as we, and obviously that's, you know, that's very easy to say, right? But I think we do need to, I think as soon as we recognize that it's like our adversary is capitalism and being sold things, it becomes easier to like frame it not as a sacrifice, um, but as, as fundamentally actually changing the system and changing our mindset. And that's really important. Um, and I think the other thing about like sacrifice saying the word sacrifice which like people in the chat have said is like that's really speaking to who you think your movement is and like you know if you're sacrificing stuff it means you're like global north middle class it's not you're not building the movement like the people at the bottom aren't sacrificing anything um the global south is not you know what i mean so i think like we need to get away from this idea of sacrifice um because it speaks to a certain demographic and it's not visionary enough Thank you so much. Um, that's put a, uh, a fantastic answer to that. Um, I'm going to now, it has been uh, alluded to, and I think uh, what Danny's just said uh, does, does actually start to answer this. But um, there was one, there's one theme about, this, especially the corona uh, crisis side of this whole thing, is what hope has come. Has hope increased? Uh, I think uh, Danny was, uh, was addressing this just now, but has hope increased? Over the past few months, is there more opportunity now? Um, there's certainly been plenty written about how, you know, the reduction in air flights and the rest of it, and how how things have improved. But this seems to be quite a superficial change for um, for the environment, and probably quite short-lived in the in, in in this in this medium term. But what what hope has increased over the over the over this uh, coronavirus crisis? 
and uh, and is that has that left you as a panelist here uh, more optimistic or less, um, Alice? Well, I have to say I'm less optimistic than before, um, because as as um, as most people at the beginning of lockdown, um, I, I could see that we were willing and and ready to to make a lot of efforts uh, to tackle the, the health crisis, and I thought, well, maybe then after the lockdown we could be we could be making the same kind of efforts to uh, tackle the, the climate crisis or the ecological crisis. Then, as weeks went by, I realized that it was all going to go back to normal uh, after the lockdown, and, and the government is already talking about working uh, more rather than sharing work. Um, so that the corporations are already lobbying for trade deals and uh, and less rights for work workers. So not really optimistic. On the other hand, I know that it's been a, a generational experience and in the long term, I think it's going to have effects in, in, in one way or another. That the, the youngest generation uh, will want another world. But in, in, the, in the very short term, I think it's going to be very, very complicated. Um, We've won a recent fight because uh, the government uh, used the lockdown to um, um, to uh, what's the word to, to forbid uh, or prohibit uh, protests. Uh, they said no, no, you can't be there, there. Can't be more than ten people in the streets. So no protests, no demonstrations, um, and it, it went to the uh, to um, the State, well, state council, and they ruled that actually uh, this prohibition was unconstitutional. So we are going to have the right to protest. So that makes me optimistic. Um, but on the other hand, um, I can see this is because we we have been mobilizing already, and in French it's very interesting because um, you can have a play on words if you say we don't want to get back normal it can sound as we don't want to get back to what was abnormal so uh, it's been a, a great um, a great campaign as well to say that the, the day the day after that we wanted should, shouldn't be you know the same kind of world that we had before um, but it's gonna take a lot of efforts I think okay Danny have you got more to add um, I want to come just quickly back on, on Kath's point about um, sacrifice and I'm not saying like it, I'm not saying it's not changed, like those people's lives will be impacted, um, but I think it's the movement's responsibility to not make that a sacrifice. Like if this movement is successful, like oil industry workers will be fully supported to kind of transition and it, it won't mean a sacrifice. So I think that's, that's, that's what I meant rather than like pretending that it's not going to impact um, people. Um, I'm more hopeful. Um, yes, I am, because um, the conditions ultimately, in many ways, our opposition haven't changed. The government is still not on board. The private companies are still lobbying as hard as they can to get their way. That's always been the case. That's always been our opposition. I think the difference now that does make me hopeful is that 
you know, the countervailing force to that is people's will and people's ability to organize against it. And um, I actually think there has been in people a like, you know, a slight reevaluation in people's minds about like what is important and what is possible, um, particularly from a government like intervention level. And I think that like psychological shift is what is needed as the force to fight against all the things that were already bad and are going to continue to be bad unless we fight them. So I think, I think um, that mind shift is the most important thing that gives me hope. And that's why I have hope. Um, I think it, what's a real challenge for our, for our movement is that like that's premised on people then like transit, like turning that into organizing and power. And while we can't kind of meet in person, which is such a huge part of having hope and being inspired, I think that is going to, that for me is the challenge rather than corporate power because that was always going to that was always our enemy um and now like social distancing is gonna is our kind of new enemy in a way um to like delivering on that hope and that like change mindset so yeah but i am more hopeful people in bristol are tearing down statues and throwing them in the river that's wicked <laughs> that gives me hope <laughs> And that concludes today's podcast. Thanks to our guests and thanks to you for listening. To find out more and join our campaign to ensure that the COVID-19 pandemic doesn't increase global inequality, visit our website at globaljustice.org.uk forward slash COVID-19. You can also check out and register for any upcoming live public meetings at globaljustice.org.uk forward slash events. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, please tell someone about it and share it on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Global Justice UK. Stay safe.